0: God, I thank you for just this time. I thank you that we can gather together. I thank you that we can praise your name. I thank you that, uh, Lord, that you're at work in each of us and that we can trust in your work, um, both in us, in others, in our city. And so, God, we just, uh, as we open your word today, I pray that you would open our hearts, that you'd teach us, uh, that you'd reveal your truth to us um, straight from your word, God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, so we're continuing our series in Acts today. We've been in this series for the last few weeks um, called Life in the Spirit. The main character in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. It's where we see the Spirit uh, work in full force in His church. And so it's been a really cool series to just walk through and see each week, like what God is doing, like He is doing a new thing each week in His church, and you see that in the book of Acts. And so this week we're going to be in Acts 9, and we're going to come to another major who he is from Acts 6 to Acts 9. He is the greatest oppressor of the church. He's called evil. Uh, He's described as breathing threats and murder against the church. He bound up Christians. He threw them in prison. Um, He had a green light from the Jewish leadership to persecute God's church. And so he watched. He had henchmen (laughs) that would beat and torture and drag off and even kill Christians. He was truly an oppressor in every sense of the word. And I said this before, we don't live in the same time as the early church in Acts. You know, so when we talk about oppression, uh, I, I don't think we fully grasp maybe what we're looking at here. Like our church and our country, we haven't experienced the same pain, pressure, persecution that those in that time were experiencing. We're a little removed from that. But we still have we still have this completely different plan and and you know we still live in a world that um or you know what do we do with a grace that extends to both victims and oppressors that's what we wrestle with in this passage it's this deep look at at god's grace What do we do with the grace that extends to both victims and oppressors? Because we don't live in Acts 9, but we still live in a world with victims and oppressors. We still live in a world where people do bad things, where injustice still happens, where things are unfair. And we have a tendency to to see the world often through our own victimhood. And I know this because I grew up listening to emo music. All right. Any emo fans out there? Emo's all about, like, our, our victimhood, right? I listened to a, a band. One of my favorites was Dashboard Confessional back in the day, right? Basically, all the songs, all of his songs are, are he's whining about his girlfriend not spending enough time with him, right? And I listened to, to those today, and I'm like, dude, just get a hobby, you know? Go fly fishing, do something. Like, he would have been fine, right? He would have been great. But, <laughs> but we need to separate today. We need to separate today. We need to separate victimhood. And whining okay because there's a lot of whining that's going on today and I know for me like I a lot of the times I feel like I'm a victim I'm just whining you know I'm not getting what I want from my leaders my family oh this person ignored me disrespected me you know is that really being a victim or is that just whining and we see whining all over the place today we see it on social media we see it uh, every day at work or at home right just oh man if we could just shut that out for a little bit right it'd be great Um, every politician that we hear is whining I just want you to know that it's just all whining Um, but there is a big difference between whining and victimhood right because many of us may be here today and we may have experienced great pain because of what someone else has done to us right Um, and that pain is real For some of us, when I talk about an oppressor today, a name comes to mind, Um, a situation comes to mind, a wound that you've carried for your whole life comes to mind, it's real. And so I don't know where you're at this morning, but as we read this passage, I want to look at how God treats someone who is very, very clearly an oppressor. And so we're going to look at this, we're going to start in Acts 9, 1. And it says this, if you have your Bibles, or it'll be on the screen. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And so what do we have in this story? Well, we start out, and Saul is in a full rage. Uh, it says he's breathing threats and murder. That means that his rage was at a level where it had taken over his body, his thoughts, his mind, that his anger was now involuntary. He was uncontrollable. He was consumed with his anger towards the church, the way, as it was called. And so he's traveling uh, from Jerusalem to Damascus because Damascus is a city that has 30 or 40 Jewish synagogues in it it has a large Jewish presence and what he wanted to do was protect them from this like Jesus movement stuff that was coming in he didn't want them to get infected with this Jesus thing that was happening in Jerusalem and here's the thing Saul thought he was doing the right thing Saul thought he was doing the right thing Saul thought he was defending God's honor you know, he was a young man. He, was, he had been brought up in the ways and the traditions of his people. And while he was doing all this stuff, he was getting approval from his superiors. And so in his mind, the way of Jesus had become such a threat um, to what he knew um, that the murders and the kidnappings and all of that was justified. Like, that's the disconnect. And so all that is going on through Saul's head. But this is what I find really, really surprising. It is in the middle of that rage that Jesus reveals himself to Saul. It is in the middle of it. It's not after a calm down, cool down. It is in the middle of this rage. Saul, Jesus reveals himself to Saul. Jesus didn't wait for Saul to cool down. Jesus didn't wait for Saul to have a reflective day at the beach. Like, he met him, I went to the beach last week, and he was great. Um, but I, he met him when he was, like, fully aggressive, full rage. And, and even though Saul didn't want anything to do with him. He, he, in fact, he wanted to, to snuff out the name of Jesus all throughout the region. It's, it's then, it's when Saul is breathing murder that Jesus chooses to reveal himself to Saul. That is a big deal. Jesus doesn't, ha- like, just show up like this very often in Scripture. Uh, Jesus, you know, this is like a special thing. And I wonder, does that bug you at all? Because I've been a Christian a long time, and I would love to have a Jesus moment like this, right? I'd love to be, like, walking down H Street and just Jesus to show up in this big cloud of glory and be like, oh, cool, I knew I, that, just that assurance of faith, right? Like, I can see it. And yet, and and, and yet, Jesus chooses to reveal himself to his greatest oppressor, not the people who were living and dying for him. That's just, how does that work? How does that work? And here we see Jesus choose to speak directly and clearly to someone who hated him. And this man who's running in the opposite direction, and it says that he shows up in this blinding light. It knocks Saul to the ground, and Jesus says, Saul, and he repeats it, Saul. Like, calm down, man, right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's like Jesus is pleading with Saul, and he asks the question, why? Why are you persecuting me? Why? Why? See, the word why, when we ask the question why, it implies pain, right? Why would this happen? Why did this tragedy happen? You know, why is that question that we ask when things are going really, really bad? And Jesus asks Saul, why? Why are you persecuting me? I want you to see, too, that's how much Jesus identifies with us. That when we hurt, he hurts. We are that connected to him. And so Jesus asks Saul that question, why? And Saul, who's lying on the ground, he recognized that this is like the voice of God. And what he does is he responds to the question, why, with the question, who? Who are you, Lord? Who are you? So we have the question why, and we have, then we have the question who. And it's a big deal, and I'll tell you why it's such a big deal. Because Saul was a Pharisee all his life. So he grew up learning everything that you needed to know about the God of Israel. Memorizing scripture, right? Going to synagogue, going to temple. So in his mind, he had God all figured out. He had God all figured out. But now he had come face to face with the living God. And everything that he thought he knew was blown up, and so he has to start from scratch. And he asks, "Who are you, Lord?" Uh, I, I love this story that Louis Giglio used to tell. Uh, Louis Giglio used to tell a story about going to Mount Rainier on a road trip, and when he was in college. And Louis from Georgia, and um, Georgia has some hills, but not like huge mountains. Right? I know you guys aren't from Georgia, but you're you're close, right? Okay, um, so. So he's from georgia so in college he does this massive research project on mount rainier um, and he he knows everything there is to know about mount rainier he knows the elevation he knows the names of the glaciers he knows the annual amount of snowfall stuff that none of us know right even though we live close to it none of us care what the glaciers are named on mount rainier maybe some of us do but most of us probably don't And so he goes on this road trip, and it's the first time he's in the Northwest, and him and his friend pull into um, a a vista, kind of the first vista in the National Park, where they can see Mount Rainier in kind of this full array, sunny day, and he got this up-close-and-personal view of it, and he said at that moment, he just burst into tears. Like, it was more beautiful than anything that he had ever seen before. It was bigger than he could imagine, and it's like, he had a moment with the mountain, right? He had a moment taking in the beauty of it. And his point was, man, there's a big difference, huge difference between knowing about God and knowing God and, like, experiencing God. Saul had learned his whole life about God to the point where, where he would, thought he was justified in killing other people, right? Because his theology, his theology allowed it. But this is the first time that Saul experienced God, and God stopped him dead in his tracks. God spoke directly to him. He stood face to face with Jesus. And so that's why he asked the question, who are you, Lord? And I believe that's the most important question that any of us could ever ask. That is the most important question any of us could ever ask, whether you're not a Christian or a new Christian. Or you've been in the church a long time. Like that is the most important question you could ever ask. And so many times we wait for crisis to happen before we ask that question. Uh, We wait until life is unraveling to ask God that question. But my encouragement is don't wait to ask that, right? Just ask God, who are you? Because it's not enough to know about God. It's not enough to go to church. Jesus invites us to seek him. To seek him First, and that he will reveal himself to us. And so Saul's real answer to this question, why are you persecuting me, is really because I don't know who you are. And just think about that for a minute. The reason why Saul is persecuting Christians is because he doesn't really know who God is. He doesn't really know who Jesus is. If Paul had known who Jesus was, if he knew the love of Jesus and the character of Jesus and the truth of Jesus, then he wouldn't have been oppressing him. I think that's important for us to realize, because what if the main reason um, that oppression happens today, what if the main reason why people make bad decisions today is because they don't actually know who God is? They don't actually know the character of Jesus. They don't actually know That there is a God of the universe who loves them completely. What if that is the fundamental answer to the problems that we see around us? And here's the thing, you know, we've, we've talked about victims and oppressors. But when it comes to our position before God, we are all in the oppressor category. We are all in the oppressor category. We all sin. And because we sin, that makes us an oppressor. And we all hung Jesus on the cross. We have all mocked him. I just want you to remember what Jesus actually said as he's hanging on the cross. This is Luke 23. It says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right? Right? They know not what they do. They had no idea whom they were crucifying. They had no idea the offense of of hanging the Son of God on the cross. They had no idea the sin that they were committing against him because they had no idea who he was. It's only at the end that one of the soldiers says he truly was the Son of God. And what is Jesus' heart as this is happening? He says, forgive them. They know not what they do. They know not what they do. And I hear that, and I think that, man, like, if, if you have a name, if you have a situation, if you have a wound, like, knowing Jesus is the only way that you can hope to forgive that, that wound, that oppressor, that name, that situation. Like, knowing Jesus and the love and forgiveness that's found in him is the only way that we can hope to forgive and find freedom in forgiveness because that's really where forgiveness leads is freedom. And so Jesus responds to Saul's question and he says, "I am Jesus whom you are persecuting." And then that's it. He says, "But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do." So all Jesus does, he doesn't have a treatise for Saul. He doesn't explain everything in four easy steps. All he says is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That's the gospel that he gives to Saul. That's all Saul needed. All Saul needed was to know who was in charge, is Jesus. And then he turns to a command immediately. He says, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Like, that's crazy how fast Jesus turns the subject. You know, he could have just like, rubbed it in saul's face and here's the list of everything you've done and you're going to need to ask forgiveness for each of these things before i can give you this directive but instead he's like no no you've hurt me but i want you to go i want you to do this thing and what do we make of this by the way there's a 180 degree turn that saul makes in this moment saul obeys but what do we make of this We make that this story shows us the depth of God's grace Like the depth of God's grace and his power the power of his calling in our lives Right that like his grace is an ocean It is overflowing that that Jesus would offer such um, Forgiveness to someone who has been going a hundred percent in the wrong direction And we're all in that boat before we know Jesus You know Saul, later Paul, when he talks about how Jesus was willing to die for us, he talks about how Jesus died for us even though we were his enemies, while we were still his enemies. And I just want to read this, uh, what he wrote in Romans 5. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would, even, would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we were weak when Christ died for us. We were ungodly when Christ died for us. We were still sinners when Christ died for us. And I want to talk about the word sinner because it's a, a word we really only use in the church. Um, but it comes from the Greek homartolos, and it refers to someone who misses the mark. But, it, but really, it's, it's an offender an offender of God, that we were all offenders of God before he saved us. And that's what he does here with Saul. We see the depth of God's grace, but we also see the speed of God's grace. Like God's grace is quick, right? Jesus doesn't make... Uh, Saul, Pay this penance right away. He doesn't send Saul to uh, rehab. He doesn't list out all the terrible things he's done He goes straight from forgiveness to calling It's amazing. He goes from forgiveness to calling. He says yes, you've persecuted me Saul But here's what I want you to do Here's the new life I have for you and he immediately sends Saul to do his will and Saul does it so what happens next in the story is that God speaks to this faithful disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and he tells Ananias to go and meet Saul. Ananias has heard about Saul, does not want to go and meet him. Um, Just don't send me to that guy, you know, please. Um, But let's look and see what God says back to Ananias in verse 15. It says, but the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel for i will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name and so that is the part where he's saul is going to go from persecuting the church to being persecuted for it right that's part of this transformation and god tells ananias to trust that he's at work with saul like trust in what I'm doing in Saul And I thought about that And sometimes it's hard to trust God's work in other people Right If there's people that, that, that you see going in 100% the wrong direction Sometimes we let those people go Right In our minds or in our hearts um, Sometimes we say they're without hope um, But what God tells Ananias to do here Is this person Who's a villain of the church I want you to trust that I can change even that person and that I changed even that person. And there's sort of this weird assurance <laughs> to Ananias, like, don't worry, I know what I'm doing. No one can flip our lives entirely around like Jesus. Like, that's, that's transformation. No one can flip our lives from going one direction to an entirely different direction like <laughs> Jesus we can be running a hundred miles an hour in one way and we meet and experience Jesus and we can go in the entirely opposite direction because Jesus doesn't just change our behaviors Jesus actually changes our desires like what we want and I know as we read this story not all of us have a coming to Jesus experience like this but you know what we still need to believe in it and when you see it, you know it. But even if you haven't had a coming to Jesus event like this, we still need to believe that it happens and that God is able to change every heart. Like I've met people, former drug dealers, former gang members who God has completely flipped around. One of the best pastors and leaders that I've ever met, five years before I met him, was sitting in a prison for gangs and drugs. So God can change anyone. And uh, Saul, Paul wrote later in Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Right? So, So Paul knows by experience the power of God to change a life. That God, only Jesus can save you and change you. And so I want to wrap up today. We're just going to look at this result. What is the result of Jesus's intervention in Saul's life? We're going to look at verse 16. It says, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, whom appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So we said earlier that God's grace is quick. Like for Saul, it was quick. But I want you to also see that God's grace is also pretty unbelievable sometimes. Like, these are the, the Jewish leaders that had sent Paul, uh, sent Saul, Paul, you know, so we just, you know who it is, okay? Um, but they send him out, right, to, to, to bind up Christians, bring him back to the temple, and he comes back like he's the biggest evangelist you could possibly meet, right? This like a 180 change, and, uh, and I just, I, I, I love that because what, they, what it says is that it confounded them. God's grace is confounding It's mind-blowing And we need to continue to believe In the power of God's grace To change a person You know, sometimes we think That, well, if, if they just, you know Get disciplined, if they just clean up If they just do all these things Before they experience Jesus Then they'll be okay, right? We have all these hoops that we want people to jump through Right? Before they can be acceptable as Christians And that's not what happens here It is a 180, and we need to continue to believe in the power of Jesus to change a life. Um, Because when I read Saul's story, I get this picture that God's grace is just an ocean. It is an ocean. It is overwhelming. And yes, I just came back from the beach, so ocean was fresh on my mind, but it's deep and powerful, and we can't, f- we can't fight against God's work in a person when someone is immersed by it. As we close, I just want to share this quote from Tim Keller. He said, Change won't happen through trying harder, but only through encountering the radical grace of God. Change won't happen through trying harder, but only through encountering the radical grace of God. That's the the gospel, gospel recipe for change. Encountering the grace of God, experiencing freedom in Jesus. Because we can try to change our lives through trying harder. We can try to change people through trying harder. We can try to change culture through trying harder. But no, it's through the power of God to change a life. So if your picture of God's grace is less than quick, transforming, confounding you just need to sit with him for a while and realize how big this ocean of grace is. And as we close today, I want to invite you this week to take a moment with God to just invite him to speak to you. Is there grace that you need for someone else in your life? Is there forgiveness that you need for someone else in your life? Have you been an oppressor or an offender and you need to ask for forgiveness? Because now might be the time to admit that to God. Now is the time. And so ask God to lead you according to his grace so that you can do his will. Let's pray. Lord, we just praise you, God, for the, the, the miracle of your grace, God, that can meet anyone in any situation and transform them. Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe more and more in the transforming power of your grace, and that we would see it more and more in our lives, God, because we believe that you are actively at work transforming every part of our lives. Lord, we give, we know you have the power for change. We know that you have the power for salvation. We know that you have the power to take what's dead and make it alive, and I pray that you just start with us this week, God, the dead parts of our lives, God, the broken parts of our lives. Would you transform this week? God, we know what those are. Lord, we know what those are. Or God, I pray that if, Lord, if if forgiveness is a struggle this morning, as we talk about oppression, as we talk about uh, our victimhood, God, I pray that you would give us the same spirit of Jesus to forgive. God, that you would just empower us forgive, so that we can walk in freedom. Lord, the freedom of right relationship with you and right relationship with others. And Lord, we ask this, God, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.